Hello and welcome back to Buddy No Mistakes Special bonus episodes Yogo Chichu We had a little real estate problem The uh, podcast where I read a book And give some commentary on the book Alright, let's get started Dallas Goldtooth and Mikishi Ponsonu grew up obsessed with the same movies in the same Minnesota household. They could recite films like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome by heart and were completely smitten with Zuckerberg's comedies like Airplane, The Naked Gun, and Hot Shots. Dallas and I, ever since we were little kids, we imitated the movies we liked, said Ponsonu. Ponsonu. Zucker, Brothers, Mel Brooks, Monty Python, even up to high school, we could do skits from MTV's The State. Their father, Tom Goldtooth, a celebrated environmental activist, led the family in ceremonies. Dallas Goldtooth explains, My family is traditional, meaning that we still practice a lot of our original ceremonies and traditional songs. And we used to do a lot of traditional gatherings. Through that upbringing, every time there was more than four people in the room, we were always joking, always laughing, always celebrating in some way, even in the darkest times. Dallas and McGeezy, <laughs> I just keep changing his name, got their hands on a uh, cheap Panasonic camera and started improvising short films in the early 2000s. Their first video was filmed in the woods behind their home. It was a takeoff on the Aboriginal People's Television Network, a Canadian cable channel known for its dry, didactic, and low-budget programming. We had just watched one of those bad APTN shows, and it was clear that the guys didn't know what they were doing. Ponsonel. Says with a laugh, it was too funny. At the time, there was some personal stuff going on at home, and I was bummed out. Dallas had this little white flip cam, and he said, let's just go out in the woods and record something and make ourselves laugh. Do that little res accent that you do, and we'll pretend like we're making one of those bad APTN shows. We shot all day and then we edited it down. It wasn't professional in any way. Later, my mom told me that she was worried because we had been quiet for so long. And then all of a sudden, she heard us laughing and laughing for days. They posted the video for friends and family, but it somehow found its way to Thomas Ryan Rencord, who felt like it was like he was watching a pair of kindred spirits, Ponsonneau says. Ryan and Sterling had been doing videos down in Oklahoma. Dallas and I were doing these videos in Minnesota. Sterling contacted me. Dude, 
I'm going to be in Minnesota in a couple of months. We should get together and do some stuff. Harjo and Redcorn came to Minneapolis to screen Barking Water, Harjo's latest film, at a local film festival. Sterling, Thomas, Ryan, McGeezy, and Dallas came together for the first time. And Dallas dragged along his friend Bobby Wilson. Raised so Bobby Wilson, I can see him see his face. He's one of the guys in um, Rutherford Falls. Raised in South Minneapolis along Franklin Avenue, Wilson had a tumultuous upbringing that saw him bouncing from one shelter to another. His parents had a volatile marriage, and his mother fled with the children. They ended up living in a shelter, and it was there that Wilson developed an ability to charm strangers and make them laugh. When you grow up in these shelters and county uh, county facilities, you're locked up with everybody. Black people, Asian people, Hispanic people. You are all in this situation, and you can either be assholes to each other, or you can figure out what we have in common. It's a survival tactic, really. I guess that's why I kind of fell into this comedy and just started swimming. At 14, Wilson learned the truth about his parents. My dad was trying to get custody of us after we left, and he was demanding blood tests, maternity tests, and that's when she told me She wasn't my biological mom. Wilson felt betrayed. I ran away to Worcester, Mass. I choose it. On a Greyhound. And stayed there for a couple of months. And this lady had been a legal advocate at a battered woman's shelter. Where we happened to be staying. Wilson slept in shelters by night and spent his days creating illicit art on the street. Graffiti was a huge part of what defined me as a teenager. I was 16 and I was arrested for graffiti. And then, and they didn't know what to do with me because I didn't have any parents. He was sentenced for two years in a group home and a $50,000, holy fuck, $50,000 for fucking spraying something on a wall. Fuck off. All the while, he continued to paint. His visual flourish showcased an obvious gift. Upon release, he focused on art and ended up at the Santa Fe Indian Market, selling his wares at the famed arts festival in New Mexico. That's where I first met Ryan Redcorn and Sterling Harjo. He says... Ryan is really is a really social dude. So we kind of started talking to each other and geeking out about art we were into. We had a lot of the same knowledge. You know, <coughs> I should watch their re, like rewatch some of their videos and figure out exactly which one sounds like what. Although they do a lot of characters, so 
I'd probably be doing them as a character if I did their voices that way. Anyways, we'll continue with what he what uh, he was saying. We were walking around, saying hi to folks, doing everything together until probably about two or three in the morning. He was like, "Hey man, you could come stay up <clears throat> at mine in Sterling's hotel. I had five dollars." in my pocket, a bottle of water, and trail mix. I ended up staying with Ryan and Sterling that night. Back in Minnesota, Wilson was hired at a youth shelter in St. Paul, where he bonded with a fellow employee, Dallas Goldtooth. The two lived near each other, played video games on the regular, and became fast friends. When Harjo and Redcorn arrived <clears throat> in town to screen Barking Water, the other movie theaters in town were showing the Twilight Saga, New Moon. The box office hit featured the wolf pack, five chiseled Native Americans who transform into wolves. Sterling, Thomas, Ryan, Dallas, McGeezy, and Bobby decided that it was a need of mockery. It inspired their first sketch, Wolf Pack Auditions, in which they played a group of posturing incompetence auditioning for the role. Basically, the idea of the video is about these native actors exploiting their nativeness to get ahead, says Harjo. That's something we had seen for a long time, and it was sort of based on real life. My dad and I had gone to this open audition for the last of the Mohicans or something. We were like, yeah, we're native, let's go to this. So we sat down in the lobby and immediately felt weird about it. I had short hair and a Hawaiian shirt, which is definitely not what they were looking for. There were all these, there were all these long-haired, chiseled natives, and one guy had a choker on and was rubbing himself with baby oil to make himself shine. I had this feeling of, man, are we real natives? What I realize now is we were the real natives in that scenario. So I thought it would be good to make fun of these people exploiting their culture to get a role and putting up a false front of who they are as native people to please the white director or white producer. Dallas told me the idea, recalls Wilson. I was like, dude, that sounds fucking funny. I hate those, you know, Twilight films. It, I was doing a, two-year mural, the Little Earth of United Tribes Housing Projects. They gave me an office key. I said, I've got a spot where we could film. A shirtless Dallas Goldtooth flaunted a loincloth, a shirtless Bobby Wilson wore red underwear, Nagizi Ponsono sported an incongruous fur coat, and Thomas Ryan Redcorn was nearly nude with only a plastic turtle to shield his groin, Wilson said. What I didn't know was that there was a school, a Sunday school that rented the place on weekends. We pulled up there and Ryan already had no shirt and a turtle over his dick. They were like, uh, can we help you? I was like, I work here. Harjo says the shoot was an improvised delight. We couldn't quit laughing. 
felt like we tapped into this thing that was waiting to be tapped into. It was a video by Indians for Indians. The idea of a Native American in a contemporary role, nobody's looking for that. But when you put it on YouTube, we get rid of the middle step and nobody said, we don't want to see Indians on the screen. People did want to see it. It had 10,000 views in a matter of hours. Wilson had no idea anyone had watched it until a bunch of school children recognized him. I was teaching a week-long poetry workshop in South Dakota at the St. Francis Indian School, he says. I got there on Monday. That video dropped on Wednesday. And on Thursday, all the fucking kids in that school had already broke through their little firewalls to watch it. The whole school. Even the teachers were like, shit, man. I fucking saw that video. Simply by creating contemporary comedy, the 1491 smash stereotypes, Ponsonu says... Pontano says Pontano says this propaganda of the savage Indian or an overly overly peaceful and passive Indian the work that we do seeks to reverse that completely yeah two extremes right two extremes one on one side and one on the other side I'm really surprised that Cliff Notes uh Cliff Nesteroff uh didn't point out that uh, Twilight was like one of the most popular uh, films of the season and that doing any parody of it was probably a way to be seen but this was this was you know the perfect one just to break right through it Vaudeville was Fraudville. Stereotype propaganda absolutely dominated vaudeville theater in the early 1900s. A quick glance at vaudeville listings from the turn of the century makes it seem like there were Native American acts touring all over, but the advertisements are deceptive. Vaudeville theaters prevented Chief Pula, Chief Kapolikan, Chief Wango, Noah. Uh, Chief Roaring Thunder, Princess Chinguilla. <laughs> what is that, Spanish? Princess Deerhorn, Princess Floating Cloud, Princess White Deer, Princess Red Wing, Princess Palanqui, Princess Watawaso, and Princess Wantura. Nearly all of them were white imposters wearing headdresses. So, I mean, <coughs> right there with that first paragraph, I'm like, nearly all. Tell me about the one that wasn't. The actual Native Americans of vaudeville were generally there as part of their compulsory boarding school curriculum. Students from the Carlisle Indian School toured vaudeville as civilization success stories. And the purpose was to show how Native Americans had been successfully converted from savagery to European refinement. The most popular... Native act in vaudeville was the Carlisle Indian Band. Oh, man. You want to go around and look at pictures? You could go right over here to the, the Avi Casino. Close by, uh, south of Las Vegas here. And, uh, you can see 
uh, a boarding school band all up on the walls. government saw to it that plenty of photos appeared in newspapers showing Carlisle students in their military haircuts and uniforms looking very European as they held violins, cellos, and trombones. It was the government's way of assuring the settler population that the Indian problem had been solved. From now on, rather than a resentful Rather than be resentful of the white settlers on their land, Native Americans would be content to play music, the music of John Philip Sousa. It was never mentioned that the Carlisle School had a graveyard on campus where more than 200 students had been buried. Hmm, I wonder why they didn't mention that part. Seems like an important part. (laughs) In public, it was pomp and circumstance but in private correspondence bureaucracies confessed that the whole process of indoctrinating native children by force was a morbid disaster morbid is an important word there disaster is another important word Oliver Lafarge of the Bureau of of Indian Affairs privately described the schools as penal institutions where little children are sentenced to hard labor for a term of years for a crime of being born to their mothers. William McConnell, an inspector for the BIA, wrote in 1899, the word murder is a terrible word, but we are little less than murderers if we follow the course. After the, well, hmm, that's very specific language there. I don't think he was being, hmm, question is, is he being overtly um, you know uh, it's a comedy word anyways is he exaggerating is he being overtly exaggerative that's not a comedy word or, or not or is he being you know I don't know after the attention of those in charge has been called and then it says dot 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 after the attention so part of it's missing here the quote is longer after the attention of those in charge has been called to its fatal results hundreds of boys and girls are sent home to die so mm, I don't know are sent home to die. So that, now does he mean to die in the reservation? Or does he mean malnutrition? They're going to die within hours. Is that what he means? Institutions where, dot, 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 there's part of the quote missing. Institutions where brass bands are, the principal advertisements may be maintained. The school also presented European-style comedy in the form of comic operas. The Philadelphia Inquirer used an infamous racial slur in the February 1909 report. Redskin Comedians is Carlisle's latest. 
advent of Aboriginal mirthmakers. A feature of great interest at this year's commencement of the Carlisle Indian School will be the production of a comic opera. Dot, dot, dot. The cast, chorus, stagehands, and orchestra will all be Indians. Dot, dot, dot. In connection with the production will be the advent of Indian comedians, a novelty which fairly paralyzes those who know the Redskin and are yet unfamiliar with his remarkable development at Carlisle. The school paper praised those native students who, quote, gave a particular clever impersonation of Negro comedians. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot to unpack. That is, that's a, that's a heavy quote. <laughs> Paralyzes those familiar with the, first of all, yeah. Those who, you know, as a history, I believe this guy is somewhat of a historian, or he's got the he's got the historian working with him that he mentions in the beginning. So they know what they know what. Uh, outside of it, I don't even want. Outside of reading the book and reading the word, I don't want to say the word, but they know that you know there was a bounty. For every quote-unquote red skin, bringing up the idea of skinning people alive is a little bit rough, you know? So there's that, and then uh, impersonation of... Another word I don't want to say outside of the context of reading in the book. I mean, even though it's not the, the worst one. Black uh, impersonation of black comedians. I mean, I think that's probably gonna be something that uh, urban Indians are gonna have to deal with <laughs> being accused of today, uh, 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 modernly, in modernity. But uh, when they say that in the terms in these times, that would have been quite possibly, you know, uh, just people in blackface. <laughs> who who knows what that even means? But that's what it brings out. Oh, un, yet unfamiliar with his with his remarkable development at Carlisle. Oh. Oh, but I bet you didn't know that we were really we're beating the shit out of them. We're putting lie on their tongues. Make sure they're not they don't they're not even gonna say uh, one of them there Indian words. They ain't gonna say one. Oh, believe us. Alright. It's weird, because at the time, you know, doing uh, traditional dances, stuff like that, outlawed. Couldn't do that kind of show. But you could do a Wild West show. Wow. You could play in a band. A school band get up on a vaudeville stage. It's crazy. Or they could put on a, a funny play that was clearly written by <laughs> written by some I don't know some hucksters. Let's just call them that. Some some carnies. All right. 
The success of the Carlisle Indian Band spawned several imitators, including the United States Indian Band. It followed the same basic formula, but with an added attraction. Pete Red Jacket, a NIDA comedian. Oh, look at that. Predating Charlie. If you don't know who I mean, I mean Charlie Hill. Red Jacket was a four-year-old who did physical comedy while the band played behind him. He became such a popular draw that he turned solo in 1907. The star toured with his father, who acted as a straight man in a schoolroom act, the popular vaudeville genre where the teacher played straight to school kids delivering joke responses. Pete Red Jacket sat at the desk while the teacher looked approvingly at his model student. When the teacher turned his back, Red Jacket burst into a soft shoe dance and made grotesque faces. When the teacher turned back around, Red Jacket would freeze in place with a metaphoric halo above his head. It was a bona fide crowd pleaser. Red Jacket unveiled... You know what I like about this act is that it is something that can be enjoyed by any audience, really. Uh, something where they understand what a school, you know, hey, we're kind of understanding what a school is. We understand, uh, you know, a class clown, a goofy youth. You know, we've all had that person in our class, etc., etc. Maybe not exactly at the time. His parents might not have understood it, but they probably would have. But like some, uh, a kid goofing off, right? Red Jacket unveiled his new partner at a vaudeville house in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1911. The act was called Pete Red Jacket and His Comedy Donkey and featured a burrow doing tricks in time to comic dialogue. Red Jacket had plenty of competition in his long-forgotten vaudeville field. Among them, Cotton's Comedy Donkeys, Beeler's Comedy Donkey, Pat West and his Comedy Donkey, and Honeypot, World's Greatest Comedy Donkey. Red Jacket's popularity endured until the cute little boy grew into an awkward, lanky teenager. The writing on the wall was plain, as, an, as the acne on his face, and the comic whom the white press dubbed the droll little red-faced comedian, wow, left the business to start the Pete Red Jacket Coal Corporation. Okay, so I'm confused a little bit, like, coal, wow. The vacancy was filled by another Native American child, the offspring of the interracial vaudeville team. Of an honor, ooh, an interracial team? Look at that. Sometimes billed as the Broadway girl and the Indian, the team of Clifford and Wayne featured a Lakota husband and a Caucasian wife. Originally from South Dakota, the Lakota half of the duo was praised by the Salt Lake Tribune for his impersonations of Joe Welch, the famous Hebrew comedian, and of, Engl and of Englishmen and Irishmen. 
they had marginal success. But with the birth of their son, the act became a smash. Their first engagement as a family unit was in the autumn of 1916 in Wausau, Wisconsin. Uh, the poster in front of the venue said, Bijou Theater, tonight, refined vaudeville, see Baby Clifford, the only Indian baby in vaudeville, novelty comedy. Clifford and Wayne gave their son exo- an exotic name, Master Carl Wayne, and renamed the act the Clifford Wayne Trio. The diminutive child learned rapid dance steps, backflips, and celebrity impressions long before Sammy Davis Jr. became a child star in the Will Mason Trio. Master Carl was essentially doing the same shtick. He was considered a positive riot over the entire Hippodrome circuit, quote-unquote. And the New York World called him the pocket edition of Fred Stone, referencing a famous vaudevillian who could do everything. His celebrity status gained him entry into the Boy Scouts of America, which up to that point had had barred non-white children from membership. Wow, look at that. The more things change, the more they stay the same. (laughs) And also, I can't imagine... (laughs) I want... You know, I wanted to be in the Boy Scouts when I was a kid. And uh, I never was. And boy, oh boy. I'm glad I never was. I couldn't imagine hanging... Especially hanging out with, like, the Mormon white kids that I would have probably had to hang out with to be in the Boy Scouts... Uh, and the other white kids just to see them have to wear feathers or whatever it is (laughs) these kids have to do uh, as part of the Boy Scouts as part of their fun little (laughs) initiations and all that oh my god pretending (laughs) being pretendians and I'm I'm an actual real native ugh it would have killed me Let's see if we can get... Let's get through this paragraph. Yeah. You know what? We're going to be able to end this chapter. Look at this. Fred Stone. Wow. Now, Sammy Davis Jr., I know that name. Fred Stone, I don't. And that's why you could just do a thousand comedy donkeys. (laughs) Because you'd be in a different part of the circuit. And they wanted to see another comedy donkey. You know? You know, uh, a vaudeville would have been... Would have been great for, uh, uh, fucking, uh, you know what? <laughs> I don't want to share my opinions on this. But it's crazy how today everything is filmed, everything can be seen. And you still jokes, it's a crime. But it's like, in vaudeville, you just be like, hey, yeah, I'm the guy who does that too. <laughs> some, in some ways, I think that would be better, you know? Because then somebody could have like a really refined version of it and you could have somebody else who's like, man, I saw this once and and they'd be working out their own way of doing it. It's not like it would be exactly the same. But if it was, that would be wild. All right. Under the watchful eye of protection organizations, 
children were barred from playing vaudeville in New York. The Clifford Wayne Trio, however, was able to bypass the regulations thanks to their status as indigenous performers. Yeah, because they weren't seen as people. So it was like a donkey act. Just kidding. That, that's my commentary on why. Variety claimed that civil authorities had no jurisdiction over natives who were under the general supervision of the government interior department. The Lakota team was praised for avoiding stereotypes. Indeed, he is sort of a wonder child performer, wrote the Dayton Daily News. There is a, there is not a war, war whoop, a tomahawk, or a wild and savage dance in the whole act. Variety agreed. The Clifford Wayne Trio have gotten away from the stereotyped regulation Indian act, and only in the man's announcement is reference made to their race. Master Carl succeeded as a youthful, versatile, entertaining comedian for 10 years until breaking, until the breaking of his voice destroyed his ability to do impressions. Oh, you, these child actors, man, you grow up and they throw you out. After one last tour through the vaudeville houses of Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Denver, and Albuquerque, Master Carl was doomed by puberty and retired from show business at the age of 13. Wow. What would have been awesome is if, you know, that was not that early in the 19th, you know, in the 20th century. They could have just kept that going. You know what I mean? There could have been one uh, child uh, Indian kid goofing off and being the nation's class clown and doing a million impressions or whatever it is that they would do, whatever the next one would do. They could have kept that going. I would have liked to have been there. That's whenever my dream was taking off. You know, as far as what I wanted, I wanted to be Webster. That would have been a lot of fun for me. So that's the end of that chapter. The next chapter is Adrian Jalapa pays the price for correcting her history teacher. Don't we all? Don't we all? I remember correcting teachers about holidays and everything. And uh, I don't remember getting in trouble too much for it. But I probably did. All right. Uh, This has been uh, me. (laughs) This has been the podcast where I read. And uh, let's do a proper outro. Why not? Thank you for listening, buddy. Wow. I need those little uh, brackets around uh, the way I talk to. Thank you for listening to Buddy No Mistakes, the podcast where I usually uh, take one word from the English Shoshone Dictionary and do a 25-minute improvisation, no long form from it. Uh, However, that is not the case today. Again, another bonus episode uh, where I have read we had a little real estate problem in today's episode we uh covered little we didn't cover but we got introduced to the 1491s uh and 
vaudeville. And we're going to continue on next week or probably tomorrow <laughs> with Adrian Jalapa pays the price for correcting her history teacher. Already that chapter, uh, I'm already figuring out this and that and what that's going to be about feels pretty modern, but it, it could be all the way back to 1909. Who knows now? <clears throat> but the way that the book is structured it's probably modern because it seems to be going uh, not so modern modern not so modern modern back and forth speaking of not so modern modern uh, that is a segue uh, that is a not so modern segue into a very modern thing uh, which is uh, me saying good night and god bless <laughs> <laughs> That's a Red Skelton quote. All right. Have a good one. Uh, I am buddy, no mistakes, and you're not. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop stealing stuff. As soon as you stop stealing land. I'm kidding. I keyed, I keyed. All right, go ahead and uh, <laughs> look up where all the quotes I just did were from. Go ahead and Google all of them. Good night.